0: Welcome to this weekly Audio Digest edition of The National, from the 9th to the 12th of March 2020. Recorded by volunteers at Cue Review Print Speaking for the Blind at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. Here are the headlines. Flybe Collapse. Up to a thousand
1: workers could lose jobs following closure. Trans-athlete debate explodes once again.
0: Glasgow Film Festival Highlights. The Painted Bird and more.
1: Police warn of major impact on service of hosting UN summit.
0: Scottish Government committed to Green's free bus travel policy.
1: Aitken squashes in cramming for exams.
0: New Wallace Monument dispute over a
2: 150-year-old landmark. Charity appeal to empower women in war-torn nation. Photography exhibition to tour country highlighting legacy of sexual violence. Roddy Womble of Idlewild discusses inspiration for new EP. Millions quarantined in Italy virus shutdown, more than quarter of the population cut off as death tool jumps to 366. SNP chief in fresh demand to know who is pulling the UK government strings. Are all the SNP MSP resignations par for the cause of reason to worry? Until we win our freedom and until we right the wrongs imposed on Scottish society, Holyrood has to be the cockpit for radical change. Sam's trial begins as woman claims she felt hunted by ex first minister. Former Scottish government official testifies about alleged incident in Butte House. Sam denies all charges. Hall of Italy on coronavirus lockdown. Guff accused of bullying Amid Roe over testing of Indyref 2. Question. Tory puts pressure on watchdog with no imminent poll. The bankruptcy of British nationalism is all around.
0: Recorded from The National on the 12th of March 2020. Flybe collapse. Up to 1,000 workers could lose jobs following closure. By Tom Jarvis. Twitter, at T-O-M-T-O-M-J-A-R-V-I-S. Up to 1,000 baggage handlers and other airport workers are at risk of losing their jobs following the collapse of airline Flybe, unions are warning. The GMB, sorry, the GMB said ground crews jobs were under threat at Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Birmingham, East Midlands, Cardiff, Liverpool and Manchester airports, while Unite said Southampton airport could close without Government intervention. GMB National Office Officer Nadine Houghton said up to 1000 Swiss port jobs are now at risk from Flybe's collapse on top of thousands more directly employed and in the wider supply chain. Many of these can be saved if airlines who've shown interest in taking on regional routes put their money where their mouth is. Get on and do it. The government needs to do everything in its power to make the transfer of routes and the saving of jobs as easy and painless as possible. Unite Regional Officer Chris Gray said Southampton airport workers were facing a very uncertain and rapidly changing period adding when fly B went under so did most of Southampton's airports work. This combined with the spread of coronavirus has left the airport in imminent danger. Unite has warned that more than 200 airport workers in Scotland employed by Swissport face losing their jobs. Today the FTSE 100 saw the second worst fall in history with major airlines hit particularly bad. Airline IAG fell more than 10% and TUI fell 20%. That article was by Tom Jarvis.
1: This is The National recorded on the 12th of March 2020. Susan Egglstaff. transathlete Debate Explodes Once Again by Susan Egglestarff, sports writer. Twitter at S-U-S-A-N-E-G-E-L-S-T-A-F-F. Before you read any further, this week's column comes with a public health warning. I'm about to mention Piers Morgan. Earlier this week, the Good Morning Britain host had a furious row with Labour leadership hopeful Lisa Nandy over trans athletes, with the former newspaper editor arguing it would be grotesquely unfair on female athletes for male-to-female transgender athletes to be able to self-identify and compete in women's sport. This is not new. The debate about trans athletes has been bubbling under for some time. In recent years there have been a number of trans athletes who have been born into male bodies but after transitioning to become female have taken part in women's sport. While it is not the case that every single one of them has blown away the competition, there are enough trans athletes who have come into women's sport and sailed past their competitors to flag up there is a huge issue here. In recent times, New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard won two gold medals at the Pacific Games, Canadian track cyclist Rachel McKinnon set a world best time at the Masters Track Cycling World Championships, and college athlete CeCe Telfer became the NCAA Division II national champion in the 400 meters. And as you get further down the chain, away from the very top level, there are becoming more and more examples of trans athletes popping up and winning titles. So far, elite sport has been relatively untouched by the transgender issue, but McKinnon has spoken of her hopes of seeing a trans athlete compete at the Tokyo Olympics this summer, which would be the first time a transgender athlete has reached such a level. And while the debate about what exactly the rules around trans athletes should be has not topped the agenda yet, it seems inevitable that before long, this issue will explode. There is a suggestion from some, and this was at the heart of Morgan and Nandy's tussle, that trans people should be allowed to self-identify. On the whole, I have no issue with this, but as soon as you allow athletes to self-identify, you risk throwing a grenade into sport. There is little doubt that for the vast majority of trans people, taking part in sport is well down their list of motivations when it comes to making this monumental life choice. But there can be little doubt that if self-identification is the only criteria, Morgan is right in his assertion that it would prove disastrous for women's sport. There are currently no clear rules as to what should happen when it comes to trans athletes, and this is where the problem lies. Without rules, too often discrimination comes to the fore, but how can it be ensured female athletes are not at a disadvantage? In America, things are reaching boiling point, with suggestions from some that trans athletes should be banned entirely from sport. Indeed, just last week, a bill was passed in Arizona that prohibits transgender females from participating in girls' sport entirely, although that law was quickly met with a barrage of protests, which claims it discriminates against trans people. There is little doubt that if the only criteria is self-identification, this could be the end of sport as we know it. Those who are born men have physical advantages that no matter how hard those who are born female train, they are unlikely to match. And it remains unclear that while male to female trans people take hormones to ensure they acquire a similar hormonal makeup to those who have been born female, do they lose their previous physical advantages entirely? How is it possible to protect the rights both of females and of trans people simultaneously? In most walks of life, self-identification presents few problems, but sport is a different sphere entirely, and the major issue currently seems to be not what the rules are, but that there remains a lack of clear guidelines to which individual sports should adhere. This issue is not going to go away and the longer it takes to set out clear rules, the more problems are going to arise, and the harder it's going to be to set things straight again. And that article was by Susan Egglestar, sports writer.
0: Recorded from The National, the 12th of March, 2020. Glasgow Film Festival highlights, The Painted Bird and more. The Painted Bird, four stars, notorious, For multiple walkouts since its first festival screenings last year, this visceral, hugely challenging wartime drama rises above the horrific nature of its content to emerge as a deeply profound experience. Its parable-like journey, set somewhere in Eastern Europe, many details remain unspecified, as an unnamed young Jewish boy tries to survive World War II while being bounced from home to miserable home by the forces of fate, Brutalised by most of the people he encounters as those around him face the surrendering threats of the Nazis and the Russians. If you have the stomach to make it through from one unspeakable atrocity to the next, you may reach a destination that just about rewards the agony of the journey. Arracht, three stars. For such a notorious and off referenced event, the Irish potato famine of the mid-nineteenth century is oddly lacking in cinematic coverage. Possibly because it's much too broad an area to tackle without recourse to some expensive miniseries, best then to drill into it in a microism, as done in this lyrical tale of a Connemara tenant farmer, whose crop faces the blight just as the landlord threatens to raise their rates to unaffordable levels. Performed almost fully in the Irish language and humming with authentic- authenticity, it nevertheless covers a lot of the same ground over and over and it does feel stretched, even over its brisk running time. But it's a story that can resonate throughout the centuries, finding parallels in our own clearances as well as modern-day social injustices, so it's just a shame it's attached to such a modest production. Translators. Four stars. When a group of multilingual translators are gathered together in a high-security bunker to each write their own language's version of the latest in a best-selling series of crime novels, The scene is set for a craftily plotted thriller, featuring a strong international cast, including Olga Kurlenko, Lambert Wilson and Alex Lothar. The shifting time frame allows for key reveals to be portioned out at just the right moment, as suspicions are raised about someone in the group perhaps stealing the top-secret manuscript, leading to no shortage of clever scenes and delightful developments in a film that celebrates the power of language and diversity even as it's thrilling us with its twists. Vivarium, four stars. There's a touch of the madness of Charlie Kaufman hanging over this brilliantly conceived dark comedy horror as a couple, Imogen Poots and Jesse Eisenberg, get drawn into a nightmarishly alternate reality while looking for a new house. Going from the everyday to the outlandish in double quick time, they find themselves trapped in a sickly green suburbia where they seem to be the only residents While being required to raise a demanding young boy who appears from nowhere. All human life is here in a film that could be about the mundanity of work or the futility of existence or anything in between. Building stealthily upon its initial premise and managing to do so in ways both eerie and hilarious. Moffy, three stars. Apartheid era South Africa in the early 80s is the setting for this well made slog of a drama told from the point of view of Nick, a young man going through compulsory national service while his country fights a border war with Angola. Most of the film is the sort of boot camp tribulations we've seen plenty of in the past, given something of a change-up through a focus on Nick's sexuality and the absolutely forbidden nature of such feelings in this despicable regime. There's not really much to be taken away from what we're presented with, other than as a grim chronicle of a time and place, but there are occasional moments of it impact, and it's beautifully short, if nothing else.
1: This article is from The National, recorded on the 12th of March 2020. Police warn of major impact on service of hosting UN Summit, by Kathleen Nutt, journalist. Twitter at KACNUTT. The security operation for the UN climate change summit will be the biggest the UK has seen for many years and will present logistical challenges to all forces in Britain and Northern Ireland, police chiefs have warned MSPs. A briefing note to members of a Holyrood committee ahead of its meeting tomorrow said there was a recognition the event tasked with producing an international response to the climate emergency would impact on frontline policing both within and out with Scotland. The Police Scotland document tells MSPs, It is widely recognised that the policing of COP26 will impact across the UK through significant mutual aid requirements from Home Office police forces to safely deliver the policing operation. While there exist well-established frameworks for the provision of mutual aid, extensive logistical challenges will arise from what will undoubtedly be the largest mass mobilisation of police officers in the UK in many years. Some 200 heads of government and a record 30,000 delegates are due to attend the COP26 event at the Scottish Event Campus, SEC, from November 9 to November 20th. The Scottish Police Federation have said that around 6,000 officers will be required each day, which equates to 2,000 per shift. The briefing updates MSPs on the arrangements the force is making for the conference and was issued to members of Holyrood's Justice Subcommittee on Policing before Police Scotland's Assistant Chief Constable Bernie Higgins gives evidence to it tomorrow. It also tells MSPs that the force is planning for significant protests at the event and will be deploying armed, uniformed, public order and undercover officers. The wider Police Scotland command structure is being developed with a number of individuals having taken up position to drive forward planning and delivery in respect of key business areas, including armed policing, public order policing, road policing, intelligence and logistics, it said scotland's chief constable ian livingston said earlier this year he believed the cost of policing cop26 could run to as much as 200 million pounds and warned it was fanciful to suggest it would not have a major impact on people living locally he said candidly "It is my professional opinion that any suggestion that the climate change conference will not impact on the wider community of scotland is fanciful In the briefing to MSPs, Police Scotland said work on the cost of the security operation was ongoing and warned it would need additional funding. A separate note to committee members from the Scottish Police Authority, which has revised estimated policing costs to £180 million, argued the bill should be covered by the UK government. As this is a UK government event, they are the funding authority and have responsibility for overall governance and assurance of all aspects of the event, it said. Last month, a row broke out between the UK and Scottish governments over the use of buildings near the SEC. The UK government wants to use the Glasgow Science Centre, but Scottish ministers have already booked it. Updating Holyrood yesterday, Climate Change Secretary Rosanna Cunningham said the Scottish Government had agreed to let the UK Government use the centre. She said, I have written to the COP26 President to offer the transfer of control of the Science Centre to the UK Government on the provision that we are offered an appropriate alternative venue. I therefore urge the UK Government to conclude this matter without delay to ensure we have a platform to pursue increased global action. We want to use COP26 as a catalyst to attract new investment, innovation and sustainable growth for Scotland that will firmly position Scotland as a world leader in tackling climate change. And that article was by Kathleen Nutt, journalist.
3: If you are blind or partially sighted or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8 and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Q&Review channels. Now, back to the main programme.
0: This is recorded from the national on the 12th of march 2020 scottish government committed to green's free bus travel policy by the national news desk the scottish government is committed to free bus travel for under-19s as promised in the budget the finance secretary has said speaking to the pa news agency forbes rubbish claims by the scottish conservatives that their promise to the greens may not come to fruition As part of the budget process, the Scottish Government had to negotiate with other parties to pass its legislation through Hollywood. For the fourth straight year, the Scottish Government was helped by the Greens to pass its plans. It has resulted in a $173 deal for the 2020-2021 financial year that led to increases in spending on policing, climate change and local government. The headline demand from the Greens was the implementation of free bus travel for young people aged 18 and under which Forbes gave an in-principle commitment to implement. A letter sent to the Greens co-leader Patrick Harvey and MSP Mark Russell pledged £15 million to look at the feasibility of the scheme, although Forbes said that some of the funding will pay for the early months of the scheme due to come into force in January. Scottish Conservatives MSPs questioned the language used in the commitment claiming the Scottish Government was looking to throw away the promise. Forbes said, We wouldn't have committed to initial investment if we didn't believe that it was a good policy. We've already identified several streams of work around how it operates, consulting particularly young people around what they want to see, and also inevitably around the due diligence and the legalities which we have to do. She added, In the budget statement I gave a commitment to begin that work, but any new policy has to be subject to due diligence." The Finance Secretary refused to give a timetable for the confirmation of the scheme going ahead, saying only she hoped the preparatory work would continue at pace. Forbes added, We're committed to trying to make this work. During the Stage 1 debate in Holyrood, 24 hours after the agreement was reached with the Scottish Greens, Tory finance spokesman Donald Cameron and his predecessor, Myrtle Fraser, both cast doubt on the promise. Tory MSP Myrtle Fraser told PA The SNP hasn't committed to introducing free bus travel for under-18s, they've only committed to investigating it. The Scottish Green Party appears to be the only group of people still fooled by this ploy. The only question is when will Kate Forbes drop the pretense and finally admit that it's not going to happen. Harvey said the policy of free bus travel for young people in Scotland was hard won by the Scottish Greens in budget negotiations. It will be a truly transformational move, saving struggling families money, widening opportunities for people starting out in life and encouraging people to leave their cars at home. We know this policy will work and can be achieved on this timescale set out in our agreement.
1: This is from The National on the 12th of March, 2020. Aitken squashes in cramming for exams by Graham McPherson. Twitter at g-r-a-e-m-e underscore m-a-c-p-h-e-r-s. From playing shots to brewing hops, Lisa Aitken's life does not lack in variety. The Dundonian is still fully committed to a professional squash career that has seen her establish herself as Scotland's leading female player. A world ranking of number 40 further underlines her status as a key figure in the global game. Nothing lasts forever however and perhaps with that in mind the 30 year old last year signed up for a degree in brewing and distilling at Heriot-Watt University. Conveniently, Scotland's Squash's headquarters are also based at the same campus, allowing her to hot-foot it from her lectures to the court and back each day. Eventually, though, something may have to give. The amount of travelling involved in elite sport – she was recently in Cairo and is scheduled, COVID-19 permitting to be heading to Boston shortly – may start to become problematic the further she gets into her studies but for the time being she is content to continue with a complex juggling act. The course has been very interesting so far, she says. The hard bit is trying to balance the two. I'm halfway through my first year and it's been a challenge trying to work out how I'm going to commit to squash full-time and also be a full-time student. I'm at Harriet Watt, which, thankfully, is also where Scottish squash is based, so my lessons aren't too far from the courts but with all the travelling I need to be savvy with my time management. I've come to uni at a later age. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 17 or 18 and it's very easy just to take that route into uni just because you're supposed to. Now I'm doing something that I'm 100% committed to. That makes it a bit easier. It is difficult to imagine a day when Aitken isn't banging the drum for squash in some capacity. It remains a source of annoyance that the sport was again overlooked for the Olympics, but she remains confident that squash will continue to grow regardless. It's frustrating that it keeps getting overlooked. We put in a phenomenal bid to the IOC. When you see the bid, it seems like a no-brainer, and then it doesn't get in and it's hard not to feel like there are other things going on there, political or whatever. But as a sport, all we can do is continually be positive and get the message out there. Marketing the sport in general has become a lot better. We've got people who are a bit more tuned in with what needs to be done. Ensuring that there is at least one squash court in every leisure centre is another mission as she looks to make more young people familiar with the sport. The first point of contact for most kids with squash would be stepping into their local leisure centre to play another sport and maybe walking past a court and asking what was going on there. Unfortunately, we're in a position now where a lot of places have closed down their squash courts. That's something we're constantly fighting against. But when you go into schools, most kids seem aware about squash. Maybe it's a legacy from Glasgow 2014, or because we have development officers going into schools and getting them familiar with it. Aitken's next commitment is closer to home at this weekend's Stirling Trucks Scottish National Championships. There's no tournament quite like the National, she adds. There's something about being number one in the country and then going on to represent your country. And it's just great being with all the best Scottish players. And that article was by Graham Macpherson.
0: Recorded from the National, the 12th of March 2020. New Wallace Monument dispute over a 150 year old landmark. Kirstine Patterson, journalist. Twitter at k-a-p-a-t-e-r-s-o-n The charity that owns the land on which the National Wallace Monument stands on is in the dark over council buyout plans. Yesterday, the National revealed how Stirling Council will seek to take ownership of the 150-year-old landmark later this year. It has been run by Stirling District Tourism, SDT, on behalf of the local authority since 1995. Councillors have now voted to take on the operation of the heritage attraction from November and to negotiate the acquisition of the land around and under it at the same time. The tower dedicated to the War of Independence hero William Wallace stands atop the Abbey Craig which is owned by another local charity the Cowans Hospital Trust. It leases the ground together with the land on which the visitor centre and car park stand to the local authority. Proceeds from that arrangement go to fund the work of the Cowanes Hospital Trust, which dates back to 1637, and provides housing to those in need by reason of age, ill health, disability, financial hardship, or other disadvantage within the local area. But last night the organisation said it had not been informed about the council's plans. Sharon Short, master and factor of Cowanes Hospital Trust, told The National, I have received no notification of this announcement formal or otherwise, from Stirling Council, and so I'm unable to comment further. A local authority source told the newspaper it is not planned to make the news public until the next steps were more concrete, stating, we held our water because it's not something you want to throw out into the public domain. The council said an external consultant has concluded that its deal with SDT no longer represents best value for taxpayers, in accordance with rules for regional authorities. It says it will work to deliver a plan to protect the 30-plus SDT staff from November on. However, SDT Chair Zilla Jamieson said the organisation has offered to pay 100% more rent to retain its role and the change will be detrimental to its future as one of Stirling's most important heritage properties. Yesterday, the charity said its proposal to the city had the potential to bring significant benefits to tourism in the city. Following claims that it had not played ball with the local authority on talks, SDT alleged it had been excluded from meetings regarding the management and operation of the monument and that documents relating to the future management and operation of the monument had not been shared. A spokesperson went on, SDT's employees have been kept fully informed at all stages of the discussions with Stirling Council and SDT has assured all of its employees that the protection of their interests remains an overriding priority. In a statement, Stirling Council said, Negotiations have failed to yield either a lease deal that offered best value or a suitable agreement to enter into a new partnership vehicle where Stirling Council could gain greater assurance over the future management of the monument. These decisions have been based on evidence provided by a nationally recognised external consultancy firm and we are confident they will give Stirling Council the power to reposition the monument for the benefit of Stirling citizens. By Kirsteen Patterson, journalist.
3: Remember, this Weekly Digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at QnReview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of The National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme.
2: The National. Monday, 9th of March 2020. News. Charity Appeal to Empower Women in War-Torn Nation, Photography Exhibition to Tour Country Highlighting Legacy of Sexual Violence. This article is by Xander Richards. An award-winning Scottish photographer, Angela Catlin, has joined forces with the Scottish Catholic International Aid Fund, SCIAF, to highlight the brutal and largely forgotten crisis of sexual violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo, DR Congo. The epidemic of sexual violence is the focus of the Skia's We Box appeal this year. Yesterday, to mark International Women's Day, the photography exhibition opened, sharing the inspiring images and stories of women whose lives have been affected by the devastating conflict that has plagued the DR Congo. The free exhibition, Hear Their Cry, Respond in Love, will be at St Andrew's Cathedral in Glasgow until March 13. After which, it will tour Scotland. The exhibition is part of a wider appeal which aims to tell the story of women and children affected by sexual violence in the troubled eastern region of DR Congo. The region's incredible mineral wealth has helped fuel decades of war, leaving thousands of women and girls in urgent need of help. The appeal has also received aid from the UK government which has pledged to double all public donations given before May 20. Katzlin who has just returned from DR Congo where she helped document scafs work and the inspiring people the charity works with, she said, We've met brave women who are prepared to be photographed and tell their stories. Many face shame and isolation from their community and their husbands are looked on as weak for not being able to protect their wives and daughters. The children of Wape remind people of their traumatic experience. There are many who are uncared for and rejected by their mothers. However, as featured in the exhibition, There are also those who are very much loved and have a chance to build happy lives. SCIAF and its local partners are helping women, girls and their families with medical care, including surgery, trauma, counselling, free legal assistance to prosecute their attackers and support to become financially independent. This article is by Xander Richards.
0: This is recorded from The National on the 12th of March 2020. Roddy Womble of Idlewild discusses inspiration for new EP by Nadine McBay, journalist. Twitter, at Nadine McBay, at N-A-D-I-N-E underscore M-C-B-A-Y. You might expect the frontman of a band to celebrate their 25th anniversary to release a reworking of an old hit with a flavour of the month producer or guest artist, something dependable to remind fans to buy a gig ticket or vinyl re-release. But Everyday Sun, the dreamlike new EP from Roddy Womble, stands alone from both Idlewild and his previous solo work. What provides a link to interview music, Idlewild's kaleidoscopic current album and this largely ambient work is the psychedelic video to lead track Everyday Sun. Shot by musician designer Danny Grant on a video synthesizer from the 1980s, It's colourful, blurry images of cities, empty spaces and Womble on a ferry, possibly to his Hebridean home, are the perfect accompaniment to the vocalist's poetic fragments about impermanence, memory and the constancy of nature. Danny did the video to interview music's There's a place for everything, said Womble, talking a few days ahead of the announcement of Idlewild's anniversary dates, tickets for which go on sale tomorrow. His visuals accompany the song, which has that idea of the meaningful and the meaningless. This constant wave of things crashing through your life, things that give its purpose. He continues, You get that a lot when you live somewhere rural, remote. You look at these landscapes, and they can be the most beautiful things you've ever seen, and they give your life context, whereas other days, you completely ignore them as you're absorbed in your own thoughts. It's the same place you're looking at, but you see different things in it. That's what I was alluding to. The EP was inspired by a concert in Abernethy-Nethy Bridge, in the Cairngorms, where Womble and cellist Oliver Coates composed music to play while the audience arrived. It was in a teepee outside of a forest, it was quite magical, says Womble. Oliver recorded my voice reading lines from a notebook and put it through an algorithm, so the meaning changes throughout the track. If you stick with it, it's a rewarding listen. Whereas Coats and Womble's Hypnotic 17 Minutes is the EP's final track, the bulk of this mysterious lulling record was constructed online between Womble and frequent collaborator and Idleworld bandmate Andrew Mitchell at his Dundee studio. The multi-instrumentalist known for his instrumental work under the alias Andrew Wozlik will accompany Womble on this tour of lesser visited towns and venues. Andrew would send me basic beats and I'd find words and maybe work out a loose melody, says Wumble, Some of them don't have melodies. Rather than it being about my vocals and my lyrics, I wanted my voice to be part of the music. We actually took a lot of words out while we were passing things back and forward to each other. It was fascinating to have that dialogue. Removing a lot of lyrical lines meant it lost a lot of its meaning, but it gained a lot of space. March twenty-sixth, the String, Lerwick. March twenty-eighth, Webster Memorial Theatre, Arbroath. March twenty-ninth, Art Centre, Paisley. April tenth, Harbour Art Centre, Irvine. April eleventh, Cat Strand Art Centre, Castle Douglas. Tickets and pre-orders for the Everyday Sun EP, released on March twenty-seventh, at www.roddywoomble.net. Tickets go on sale tomorrow for Idlewell's twenty-fifth anniversary dates including November 14th, Usher Hall, Edinburgh via www.idlewild.co.uk That's by Nadine McBay, journalist.
3: Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager Sophie Weldon said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information, and entertainment, but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk, that is S O P H I E at blind.org.uk, or phone 01283 790 208. That's 1283 or on 7540 thats 7540 To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme.
2: The National. Monday, 9th of March 2020. News. Millions quarantined in Italy virus shutdown. More than quarter of the population cut off as death tool jumps to 366. This is by Xander Richards. More than one quarter of Italy's population has been placed in mandatory quarantine as the government attempts to stem the spread of the coronavirus. The Italian Prime Minister... Giuseppe Conti signed a decree affecting about 16 million people in the country's prosperous north just after midnight on Saturday, putting stringent measures in place until April 3. The quarantine includes the Lombardy region with Milan at its heart and at least 14 provinces in neighbouring regions including Modena, Parma, Padua, Treviso and Venice. Conti said... For Lombardy and for the other northern provinces that I have listed here, there will be a ban for everybody to move in and out of these territories and also within the same territory. Expectations will be allowed only for proven professional needs, exceptional cases and health issues. Yesterday it was announced that the number of deaths from coronavirus in Italy rose from 233 on Saturday to 366. The country also recorded its... Biggest delay increase in coronavirus cases since the outbreak began in the north of the country on February 21st. The total number of people diagnosed with the infection now stands at 7,375 up from 5,883. On Saturday, there was chaos and confusion hours before Conti signed the decree, as word spread that the government was planning the quarantine. Packed bars and restaurants emptied quickly as people rushed to the railway station in Padua's. Veneto region. Travellers with suitcases wearing face masks, gloves and carrying bottles of sanitising gel shoved away onto trains. Some regional politicians were also taken by surprise with Stefano Bonaccini, the president of the Emilia Romagna Mara- region, saying parts of the decree were confusing. Bonaccini called on the Prime Minister to provide more time to come up with her coherent solutions. The mayor of Asti in the Piedmont region posted an irate video on his Facebook page condemning Rome for not keeping regional leaders in the loop. Nobody told me said Maurizio Rosero adding that he had hundreds of messages on his mobile phone from alarmed citizens. It's incredible that information that is so delicate and important will come out in the newspaper first leaking everywhere before even local authorities learn about it. Pope Francis did not deliver his usual blessing and remarks from a window in the Vatican yesterday in a move aimed at discouraging crowds amid the coronavirus outbreak. Instead, a video of him reading his comments and reciting prayers, standing at a lectern near a microphone in the Vatican's apostolic library was beamed out to the faithful on giant screens set up in St. Peter's Square. The bells of St. Peter's Basilica told as the window opened and Francis appeared for a few seconds to wave to the people below in the square. But he made no comments from the window having already delivered the broadcast remarks. The measure which was announced on Saturday was amid at discouraging crowds from gathering in the square where on days with good weather like yesterday, as many as 40,000 people can turn out to watch the Pope in the window. However, several thousand tourists and faithful turned out anyway but were scattered across the West Square. Western countries have been increasingly imitating China, where the virus first emerged late last year, and which has suffered the vast majority of infections by imposing travel controls and shutting down public events. Other countries around the world are also limiting activities with events called off under restrictions issued. An ongoing nosedive in tourist traffic and supply chain disruption is prompting fears of a worldwide economic shutdown. This article is by Xander Richards. The National. Monday, 9th of March 2020. Politics. SNP chief in fresh demand to know who is pulling the UK government strings. This article is by Greg Russell. Ian Blackford has said he wants to know who is pulling the strings in the UK government as Boris Johnson hides from parliamentary scrutiny. Citing concerns over how the government is functioning Blackford reiterated his call for the Prime Minister's senior adviser Dominic Cummings, to appear before the House of Commons Lyerson Committee, which counts promoting effective scrutiny of government among its functions. Speaking during an interview with the Press Association news agency, the SNP's leader at Westminster said, I'm deeply concerned as to what's happening under the stewardship of our Prime Minister. This Prime Minister that seems to be hiding from Parliament, hiding from scrutiny, seems to be handing political power to an unelected official that needs to be brought in front of Parliament. In a warning ahead of this week's budget, the Ross, Sky and Lockerber MP said, austerity is impacting public health and the government has a responsibility to end it. He called on the government to recognise that now is the time, not just because of coronavirus, But it puts it into sharp focus that we need to have this investment in our NHS. Blackford said all necessary steps that need to be taken to protect citizens in conjunction with the devolved administrations should be taken. Rishi Sunak, the new Tory Chancellor, is preparing to deliver his first budget on Wednesday against an uncertain economic backdrop following the global spread of the virus. And he could be tempted to announce a hefty package of tax rises if history is anything to go by. Blackford said, I think not just in the UK, but globally, we have to reflect on what coronavirus could do in confidence. And there is an indication that there will be importance given to momentary measures in terms of what could happen as far as rates are concerned. What could happen in terms of liquidity and that's important? Ahead of Wednesday's budget speech in the Commons, Blackford argued for an increase in health spending to the average in Scotland, plus the removal of the rape clause and two-child benefits limit. He also wants pension justice for the Waspie woman, who are complaining about the way in which the state pension for men and women was equalised, and further action on climate change. Blackford said, This has been about political choices over the last 10 years, the monetary policy initiatives, they have been enormous in their entirety and ordinary people have paid a price. These are before you considered the impact of what coronavirus might do in the short term and we hope that is is limited for all our interests. But there are signs of that austerity is impacting public health, life expectancy, infant mortality and government has got a responsibility to end austerity. There still is a squeeze on public finances that has been imposed by this government. Now is the time to bring that to an end. This article is by Greg Russell. The National. Monday, 9th of March 2020. Opinion. Are all the SNP MSP resignations par for the cause of reason to worry? Until we win our freedom and until we right the wrongs imposed on Scottish society, Holyrood has to be the cockpit for radical change. This article is by George Caravan. As I write, seven sitting SNP MSPs, including two current ministers, have announced they are standing down at the Holyrood election in May 2021. For the record, they are Michael Russell, James Dornan, Bruce Crawford, Richard Lyle, Stuart Stevenson, Gail Ross and Eileen Campbell. Now seven out of the 63 SNP candidates elected last time is not a huge number. In fact, at the 2016 Scottish Parliament election, eight SNP members retired. So it's very much par for the course. Or is it? Actually, I think there are reasons to be worried. For starters, the Scottish Parliament passed an SNP government motion only on January 29th by 64 votes to 54 calling for a second independence referendum to be held in this year. Two days later, in a highly trailed speech, the First Minister reiterated that she wanted a second referendum as soon as possible, preferably this year. She was not alone, the retiring Cabinet Secretary for the Constitution no less. Michael Russell has been vocal in defending 2020 as a possible date for indyref 2. Even as he was mulling over his resignation announcement, if we really were facing a second referendum within a matter of months, then any thoughts of resignation by the man most likely to front the ensuing independence negotiation with Boris Johnson would seem strange. More realistically, if the SNPA expect to secure yet another referendum mandate next year, and if they really believe Boris Johnson will then grant a Section 30 order to hold one, one assumes Russell's well-honed negotiating skills would be even more in demand, What does Michael know that we don't? Russell has been doing sterling work in the national movement and SNP for a generation. He and Alex Salmond virtually rebuilt the party from the bottom up starting in the early 1990s. Without Russell as chief executive and fixer, the SNP would be a historical afterthought. He has served as a safe pair of ministerial hands in a variety of posts covering education, culture, environment, Gaelic and latterly Europe. At the same time, Russell has a personal hinterland that is the anesthetics of clone-like, robotic special advisors who end up as politicians these days. He is a talented filmmaker and writer who would find plenty to occupy him if he left Holyrood. But why quit frontline politics just when the nation you have fought to create all your political life is just about to be born? Assuming, of course, that you think that Saltire is about to be raised over Edinburgh Castle... Russell has been quick to point out that life does not end just because you quit being an MSP and that he intends to remain active. He also points out that he will be 67 in August, but I'm still not convinced. These days, three score and seven is still a mid early for retiring from frontline politics. Bernie Sanders is 78, Joe Biden is 77 and Donald Trump is a useful 73. Vladimir Putin is 67 and sadly seems bent on retaining power for a while yet. Ditto China's Xi Jinping, who is 66, I reiterate, losing Michael Russell from the Scottish government seems a bit careless if you truly expect tough independence negotiations to start anytime soon. But that's just my point. Perhaps there are those in the SNP hierarchy who privately think that all talk of an imminent referendum is so much baloney designed to keep the members quiet. That securing a Section 30 order from Boris and his English Nationalist party by using gentle persuasion alone could take a very long time, if not forever. That there is more to life than banging your head against a political brick wall or trying to run a Scottish administration whose five school hands are always tied by the UK Treasury. Or having Labour blame you for Tory austerity when Scottish Labour would never say boo to a goose if they were accidentally in power. For the record, I don't grudge Michael Russell his escape from the rigorous of office. I'm also mindful of the heartfelt reasons offered by Gail Ross for giving up her beautiful but vast Kafness, Sutherland and Ross constituency. She prefers seeing her young son grow up to a facing the enervating 250-mile commute to Edinburgh. Plus, she is sick of the online abuse that goes with being a female representative these days. Something of the same lies behind the early exit of Clyde Stale MSP Eileen Campbell, who has added burden of ministerial office as community secretary. There are solutions. We should note that the modern SNP has drifted far away from the party's 1970s passion for local democracy, which sought to pass most decision-making down to the communities where it matters. Can I suggest that the problem with combining family life with Participation in grassroots politics lies not merely in family-friendly parliamentary hours, but rather in radically decentralizing decision-making away from the Hollywood bubble. That includes the SNP re- reinstating their long-time demand for Scandinavian-style local income tax to fairly fund their own ca- town councils. But such reforms required the SNP at Hollywood to recover some of their radical, youthful fire. It would also mean the party trusting their grassroots membership to a greater extent, which, by the way, includes being honest about the impossibility of any independence referendum this year. I am not the only one who reviews the cutting of the annual spring conference to a single day in Aviemore as a suspiciously convenient method of curtailing debate over tactics and strategy. We are a democratic movement and our political line of march cannot be handed down simply from on high especially when we see respected and trusted leaders announcing their retirement from hollywood there's already much discussion in the wider yes movement regarding the creation of an umbrella body to coordinate grassroots campaigning and provide wider forum for democratic debate about the shape of a future independent scotland such decision is not a threat to the hegemonic political role of the SNP within the movement. Nobody seriously believes we will secure independence from the British state without the SNP winning a majority at Holyrood. But equally, there is space for our parallel, grassroots body on the lines of the Catalan National Assembly to give consistent direction to the national campaigning. Perhaps some of our retiring MSPs still with fire in their belly might find a home there. Yet who will find their vacant places at Holyrood? Until we win freedom for our people, and until we right the wrongs imposed on Scottish society, Holyrood must be more than a sedentary debating chamber. Instead, it has to be the cockpit for a radical change to challenge the UK Treasury on spending to end the power of landed oligarchy by returning our land to the people to face down big oil at Mosmeron, and ultimately to force not beg Westminster to accept Scotland's right to self-determination. If there's an upside to the loss of so many Wheel Kent faces at Hollywood next year, it's the possibility we will elect a new generation of MSPs ready to realise this urgent agenda. This article is by George Caravan. The National. Tuesday, 10th of March 2020. News. Sam's trial begins as woman claims she felt hunted by ex-First Minister former Scottish government official testifies about alleged incident in Butte House, Salmond denies all charges. This article is by Gregor Young. A former Scottish government official has told a court she felt hunted by Alex Salmond moments before an alleged attempted rape in Butte House. The former First Minister of Scotland who denies all charges was at the High Court in Edinburgh yesterday for the first day of his trial over accusations of sexual assault. The woman was first to give evidence and spoke out about two alleged incidents including one charge of the 65-year-old trying to rape her in June 2014. It is alleged the incident took place after a dinner at the First Minister's official residence. She said he was touching my legs, running his hands up and down them. He started trying to kiss me and things, kiss me and touch my shirt and my upper body. I was talking to him the whole time. Trying to explain why this wasn't okay, it wasn't getting through, he thought it was funny, he was trying to make banter of it. It was heard he blocked her path when she tried to leave and began groping her as well as kissing her. She said, at this point I started to feel scared, I can only really describe the next set of events as feeling you were in the ring like Muhammad Ali and Foreman. It was constant. It wouldn't stop. The court heard Alex Salmon kept asking her to stay overnight and she agreed but on the condition they stayed in separate rooms. She described this as being a bit of an escape plan. When she entered her room it was heard Salmon followed her in with a bottle of red wine. She told the court Salmon pounced on her, stripped himself naked, took her clothes off and pushed her onto the bed. The woman said he then climbed onto the bed and on top of her. She added... I felt like I was hunted, I remember feeling him on top of me, he was a ruse, his private parts on top of me. I just did one final push to get him away, and managed to get him on the other side of the bed. He kept saying to me, he will be a great lover. I think he was a bit drunk, he could be quite or a lot drunk. It was hard to know, he was marring about how I was being stupid, and then he passed out and started snoring. The court was then told the complainer waited for Salmon to fall asleep before she went to the bathroom. She told the court she did not give him any indication that she would welcome such contact. The woman added, Why would I want to go out with him? He's a much older man who didn't look after himself. It was heard she had been due to go to a football match with the former first minister, but decided not to attend. Evidence was also given about an alleged sexual assault in Butte House beforehand in May 2014. The court heard the same complainer had stayed behind to do work with Salmon when they began Doing shots of a Chinese white spirit, which she described as an unusual incident. The complainer described Salmon as being half cut and that he was in a good mood. The court heard he sat on the floor and then asked her to sit next to him. She said, he was putting his hand down my top and kissing my face and neck and touching my legs. He was laughing. It was heard she then managed to make her excuses and leave. Judge Lady Doreen earlier told the jury of nine women and six men they must be impartial during the trial. Salmon faces 14 charges of alleged offences against 10 women, all of which he has pleaded not guilty to. The charges span a period between <clears throat> June 29th, 2008 and November 11th, 2014. With one sexual assault said to have taken place in the month of the Scottish Independence referendum in September 2014. Salmon, who was first minister from 2007 to 2014, faces a number of other sexual assault charges as well as two indecent assault charges. His trial, which is expected to last to four weeks, continues today. This article is by Gregor Young.
3: Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from The Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email a-a-a-t-l at qandreview.com. That's triple-a-t-l at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at cureandreview.com. Thank you. Now,
0: back to the main programme.
2: The National. Tuesday. 10th of March 2020 News Hall of Italy on coronavirus lockdown This article is by George Gaynor Italy will lock down its entire population of 60 million people for nearly half a month to halt the march of the coronavirus, it was announced last night. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti said a new government decree means no one will be able to travel outside the area where they live except for work or family emergencies. Conti said the measures which come into place tomorrow are to defend the most fragile members of Italian society. Italy's coronavirus death toll jumped by 97 to 463. It is the worst hit country after China. Weddings and museums, cinemas and shopping centres will be affected by the new restrictions. In a televised address, Conti said that the best thing for the citizens of Italy was to stay at home. He said people should not move around apart from for work or an emergencies. There won't be just a red zone, he told reporters referring to a lockdown of areas in Northern Ireland instituted over the weekend. There will be Italy as a protected area, he said. Conte also spoke of the young people in much of Italy who have been gathering at night to socialise during the public health emergency that started on February 21st. This nightlife, we can't allow this anymore, he said. Pubs had been closed in Northern Italy with... Eateries and cafes also ordered to close at dusk. After mass testing uncovered more than 7,300 infections, Italy's outbreak surged to nearly equal South Korea's, which had been tapering off, and trailing China, where COVID-19 is in retreat. Around the globe, more and more events were cancelled or hidden behind closed doors from the Pope's Sunday service to a Formula One race in Bahrain to a sumo competition in Japan where wrestlers arrived at the arena in face masks and were required to use hand sanitizer before entering. In Saudi Arabia, all schools and universities are to close starting on Monday, following similar moves in central China, Japan and other Gulf countries. Questions grew about whether to maintain US presidential campaign rallies and other potential super spreading gatherings of people as the virus entered new US states. Authorities in the U.S. state of California are preparing to receive passengers aboard a virus-hit cruise liner held off San Francisco. 19 crew members and two passengers on the Grand Princess have tested positive for COVID-19. The vessel is carrying about 3,500 people from 54 countries. In Iran, approximately 70,000 prisoners have been released to combat the coronavirus outbreak. Judiciary Chief Ebrahim Raisi said, the release of the prisoners to the point where it doesn't create insecurity in society will continue. At least 237 people have died and 7,161 have been infected across Iran since mid-February. The Pope who has been ill with cold for over a week held his Sunday blessing by video instead of in person. He was described feeling like he was in a cage. In China the government locked down about 60 million people in central Hubei. Province in late January. The situation remains the same six weeks later. China has suffered about three quarters of the world's 110,000 coronavirus infections and most of its 3,800 deaths. New infections in China have leveled off, however, and most of those infected have already recovered. The World Health Organization, WHO, has said China's actions have helped the rest of the world prepare for the virus to arrive, and WHO, Chief Tedros. Hanum, Ghebreyesus tweeted his support for Italians on Sunday praising their bold courageous steps aimed at slowing the speed of the coronavirus. This article is by George Gaynor. The National Tuesday 10th of March 2020 Politics Guff accused of bullying Ahmed Rowe over testing of IndyRef2 question. Tory puts pressure on Watchdog with no imminent poll. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. The elections Watchdog is to press ahead with plans to consider whether to test the referendum question Nicola Sturgeon wants to put to voters this year. Should Scotland become an independent country, the National can reveal? The move comes as Michael Russell, the constituency Affairs Secretary yesterday accused a Tory cabinet minister Michael Gov of trying to bully the Electoral Commission after Gov wrote to his boss last Friday suggesting there was no prospect of an imminent pull and a request by Russell to assess the question was a poor use of public time and money. Responding to Gov's letter, Russell hit back, it is a poor use of time for a UK government minister to try to interfere with and bully an independent statutory body. Given the disaster that is Brexit, Gough should be giving all his attention to mitigating its effect on businesses and England's failing public services. Members of the Electoral Commission's board will discuss on Wednesday next week if it should assess the referendum question. The Scottish Government want the same question posed in a second referendum as the one posed in the 2014 poll. If the Commission's board agrees to the question being tested, it is understood focus groups will be asked for their views in a research exercise that could last up to 12 weeks. Gough, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, told the Electoral Commission last week a referendum was not imminent and Russell had written to it as an exercise designed to persuade Scottish National Party members that a referendum is imminent. Writing to Sir John Holmes, the Chairman of Electoral Commissions, He said the Scottish government should be focuses on domestic responsibilities. The UK government's clear position is that it is outside the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament to legislate for and hold a referendum on Scottish independence. Absent a transfer of relevant powers, he said. The Prime Minister wrote to the First Minister of Scotland on January 14th to confirm that he cannot agree to such a transfer of powers. The people of Scotland voted decisively in 2014 to remain part of the United Kingdom and the UK government is committed to respecting and upholding that result. The UK government has been very clear that a Scottish government should focus on delivery of its significant domestic responsibilities including the ongoing implementation of the welfare powers in Scotland Act 2016 and work with the UK government to ensure that this year will be a year of opportunity for Scotland not a year of constitutional wrangling and grievance he added the electoral commission of course has an important role in testing the suitability of referendum questions where there is a referendum in prospect however there is no lawful referendum on scottish independence in prospect and in view of that I believe the Scottish Government's request to you represents a poor use of time, resource and public money and is an exercise designed to persuade Scottish National Party members that a referendum is imminent. Nicola Sturgeon announced in January during her Brexit Day speech that she was asking the Electoral Commission to formally retest the question, should Scotland be an independent country? The intervention followed the Prime Minister's rejection for the Scottish Government's call for a second referendum. A spokeswoman for the Electoral Commission said yesterday, I can confirm that the board will consider the request for the Scottish government at their meeting on March 18. She added, electoral law enables governments to request the commission's expert advice and assistance to inform their decision making in the best interest of voters. We have received a request from the Scottish government to retest the question used in the 2014 independence referendum and are currently considering it. The Electoral Commission took 12 weeks to test the question put in the 2014 independence referendum. The question that was tested and which was put to Scott in the September poll was, should Scotland be an independent country, the Scottish Government want the same question to be put to voters again, and Russell, the Constituential Affairs Secretary, wrote to the Electoral Commission on February 5 to ask them to test the question again. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. <laughs> the National. Tuesday, 10th of March 2020. Opinion. The bankruptcy of British nationalism is all around. This article is by Wee Ginger Doug. After Wally Rennie faced calls to step down from politics and get back to bus driving because he protected David Steele, who in turn protected the child abusing. Surreal Smith in order to protect the reputation of the liberal Democrats there are now suggestions that Wally should be replaced with Joe Swinton who protected Wally Rennie who protected David Steele who protected the child abusing Surreal Smith in order to protect the reputation of the party according to reports in the National last week Joe Swinton is seriously considering returning to frontline politics in the Hollywood elections next year the reports didn't say whether she was also seriously considering returning to live in Scotland with her family instead of telling us that she stays at her f- Moss house. The Lib Dems have been all but invisible since their electoral catastrophe in December. So don't say it's all bad news in British politics. Jo Swinton started that election campaign confidently, predicting that she was going to be the next Prime Minister, but couldn't even keep her seat. Jo's inauthentically oozes out of her every time she opens her mouth. No doubt her fans in the Scottish media, desperate as they are for a new saviour of the union, will toot her as the next First Minister. They've already run through the Labour Party and Conservatives only to be left with less than nothing, so it's only fair that the Lib Dems get a shot at the Crown of Thorns. The suggestion that Joe Swinson should return to Scottish politics And the notion that she's going to help prevent this country's move towards independence is a symptom of the political, intellectual and more bankruptcy of British nationalism in Scotland. It's an ideology which is desperately failing around seeking something that might provide a solid surface upon which to build its appeal, only to discover that everywhere it's landed so far has been a swamp that's only caused it to sink even lower. If you're reduced to pinning your hopes on a politician who has already been rejected by the voters, it's an admission that you've already lost. We see the bankruptcy of British nationalism all around us, it's in the way Brexit has turned from a demand to restore the sovereignty of British Parliament into a power to grab for the Prime Minister, we see it in the undermining of the devolution settlement, we see it in the failure of Boris Johnson to provide reassuring leadership during the various crises that have already assailed his government during its short time in office, whether that's the floods of the coronavirus outbreaks. Far from the promised sunny uplands of Brexit, the UK has rapidly descended into flights in supermarkets over toilet paper. I'm a bit of a fan of dystopian movies and f- I've seen depictions of the apocalypse with feature alien invasion, zombies, gladiatorial contests, writing, looting, and mass death. I've yet to see an apocalypse where everyone sits at home wiping their backside. It's safe to assume that all those millions of keep, calm, and carry on items sold. Over the past few years, haven't had any effect. Perhaps if those fighting over toilet paper stocked up on keep cam posters instead, then there wouldn't be a problem. Normal service will be uh, restored once the panic buyers have starved to death in their homes, trapped by piles of toilet paper but with nothing to eat. Yet a responsible and reassuring government would have ensured that such nonsense never happened in the first place, where Vietnam produced a catchy song and dance routine encouraging people to wash their hands to help prevent the spread of the virus. we got Jacob Rees-Mogg telling us to sing God Save the Queen. We have a Prime Minister who gets up in the morning and lies for breakfast. Then he lies all morning. He has some untruths for lunch and he lies all afternoon. Then he has a plate of untruths for dinner and gets another spot of mendacity in which a few drinks. This is not a man who is capable of reassuring anyone with a functioning set of Neurones. The problems for Boris Johnson are only going to get worse as the coronavirus outbreak starts to bite and collide with public services which are suffering f- the malignant effects of a decade of toy austerity. The Brexit negotiations are only going to prove ever more difficult. The rumblings of a discontent at a government inhabited by bullies and clowns will only grow louder. None of this is going to prove any easier to sell an increasingly disenchanted Scottish public, not by Scottish Labour Party, which is neither Scottish nor Labour, and not even if a failed Lib Dem politician with a reputation for the inauthentic is roped into help. None of them have shown the slightest inclination that in order to appeal once more to the electorate in Scotland, they need to make fundamental changes. Most of them are scarcely aware that they need to change at all. All of them are still in denial that opposing independence in itself a nationalist, a British nationalist proposition. This week and the weeks to come will, of course, be dominated by news of a certain trial. Social media is full of apologists for the British states who are gleefully rubbing their hands in the belief that this trial will spend the end for the SNP. And for hopes for Scottish independence, they're going to be proven wrong. While there may well be a short-term effect on Scottish politics, the demand for Scottish independence isn't driven by the SNP. It's driven by the way in which The British state and its nationalist ideology which masquerades as non-nationalism is incapable of meeting the political, economic and social needs of modern Scotland. The failure of British nationalism is an ideology is compounded by the incompetent arrogance of British politicians. Even a former Tory spin doctor, Eddie Barons, was forced to admit in an article in the Sunday Times at the weekend that Westminster is pushing Scotland to independence. That dynamic isn't going to change no matter what happens in a courtroom in Edinburgh. Once the trial is over and the dust has settled, the underlying dynamic driving demand for Scottish independence will reassert itself. This article is by Wee Ginger Doug.